I dream a world where man no other man will scorn, where love will bless the earth and peace its paths adorn. Those words by Langston Hughes, as set by Damien Sneed, open a new album on Sadie Records, Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers, featuring baritone Will Liverman and pianist Paul Sanchez. It's the February 2021 release on Sadie Records, and those of you who have listened before know that every time we have a new release on Sadie Records, we have a new classical Chicago podcast. This is episode 41. I'm Jim Ginsberg, founder and president of Sadie Records and host of these podcasts, and I'm delighted that my guest on this podcast is the star of the show, baritone Will Liverman. Hi, Will. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be doing this with you. For those who are not regulars at Lyric Opera of Chicago or the Metropolitan Opera or the many other great opera houses at which Will has sung, I'll give a quick introduction. Will is the recipient of the 2020 Marian Anderson Vocal Award. In 2019, he won both a Richard Tucker Career Grant and the Sphinx Medal of Excellence. He holds his Master of Music degree from the Juilliard School, as well as a Bachelor of Music degree from Whedon College here in the Chicago area. And Will is also an alum of the renowned Ryan Opera Center at Lyric Opera of Chicago. In fact, at the time he entered, he was the youngest singer ever to join that program. He has performed, as I mentioned before, many times at Lyric Opera of Chicago and also the Met. And he has the distinction at the beginning of 2020, he became the first black Papageno at the Metropolitan Opera after nearly 500 performances of that Mozart classic on that stage. So that's quite a feather in your cap, and I understand you'll be reprising that role in the next season as well. So, Will, why don't you introduce yourself by telling people a little bit about your start in music, how you got to become a musician and a singer, who your role models were, your teachers, your experience in apprentice programs like the Ryan Opera Center, and take it from there. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. My name is Will Liverman, and music was always in my family. My mom was a gospel singer. My dad, he sang a little bit as well, but he actually played jazz trumpet and piano. They got me involved in music at a young age, and gospel music was a big part of my upbringing, and so it was a big musical foundation for me. And so I started singing gospel choir, actually started playing at a young age by ear because traditionally in the gospel church we don't have sheet music or anything we learn by ear and it's all about feel at the same time one of my early role models who i call my musical mom martha berryman was my first classical teacher so she introduced me to classical music and it gave me a respect for the classical world as well so i had my foot in both music that i knew growing up gospel and also being introduced to classical i am from virginia beach virginia and i went to the governor school of the arts which was in norfolk virginia and this was an all performing arts high school separate from our public schools. If you went to governor school, you basically attended two schools. And I applied for this program as a vocalist and an instrumentalist since I did both. I don't know what made me audition for the classical program, but I just realized I wanted to take a crack at it. It sounded like an interesting program. And then I got in for the voice program as a high schooler at the governor school. And that's where I was introduced to opera. And Mr. Robert Brown was a big role model of mine six foot four giant black man who I love because he was my first voice teacher classically, but he also grew up with gospel music too. So he was able to really relate to me. Sadly, he passed in 2008, but he was really the person that got me into opera. And he was a very important person in my life. And a governor school happened. I did that. That got me interested enough in, in classical music to want to study opera. So I went on to Wheaton College just west of Chicago and did my undergraduate there. And then after that, I attended the Juilliard School and got my master's. And funnily enough, I didn't actually apply for the Ryan Center. I didn't think I was good enough to get in. So I actually was looking at other places and I was at Santa Fe the year prior and some folks from the Ryan Center had heard me sing for the big audition and they invited me to the final round for the Ryan Center. And I got into the Ryan Center that fall which was the second year of my master's. So I went right into the Ryan Center after I finished my master's degree, did that for three years, and then just hopped out in the deep end. And that's how it goes 
when you're trying to become an opera singer, once you finish with the schooling and you know you have all these extended programs of education, eventually there comes a point where you have to just get out of that world and try your hand the professional stage and had its challenges coming out, of course. I didn't have a lot of opportunities. I was looking for everything I could in competitions, took every audition I could and slowly built my career up from there. I started off doing a lot of stuff with regional companies. Companies like Opera Philadelphia were really important in my development. They took a chance on me and I got a chance to do Charlie Parker's Yardbird as Dizzy Gillespie. And so creating a brand new role, that was a big thing. And that show actually traveled a few places. And so that was my big step out as a professional. And yeah, just slowly started to build and just kept at it and worked my way up all the way to the Met and made my debut in 2018. And Marnie, Nico Muley's Marnie, which was a really great production. And then just last year, right before the pandemic, I did Magic Flute and Akhenaten and been able to stay busy as an opera singer, which is something I've been really grateful for at this point in my life and where my career is. So, yeah. Terrific. I should note that you dedicate this album to your late mentor, Robert Brown, which is wonderful. Now, you mentioned playing an instrument. What was your instrument? My instrument was piano. Which you still play. Oh, I still play, yes. And in fact, we'll talk about that later on in the podcast. I should note that while this is your first full album for Sadie Records, it's not your first appearance on the label. A couple of years ago, you joined Soprano's Nicole Cabell and Allison Cambridge on their album, Sisters in Song, which is an album mostly of duets, with one exception, the beloved trio Suave Silvento from Mozart's Così Fan Tutte, in which you perform the role of Don Alfonso in the trio. And it's really charming. I hope people would have a chance to check that one out. Such a beautiful piece. And I was really thankful for the experience. That was my first time actually recording with an orchestra. So I felt, you know, like, ooh, this is fun. <laughs> well, we really enjoyed doing that. That is, uh, I really enjoyed producing that album. Well, let's move on to the album at hand. And I should note, this is not just an album for you because you've been giving a series of recitals of songs by Black composers as well. What was your inspiration for this project, both as a live concert and as an album? I'm a big advocate for representation in the arts world in general. And I have a love of art song. I love what art song brings. I wanted to highlight Black composers for their contributions and art song because oftentimes I think a lot of Black composers are just overlooked in general, especially, you know, what we're taught in school. And I really wanted to highlight them because there's so many great Black composers that I think get overlooked and we don't really spend enough time talking about them. So I just wanted to do my part, you know, as a, a singer to sing some of this fantastic and brilliant music. I made it a point to focus on art songs because I think when we do hear a Black composer's work, it's not that it's always a spiritual, and spirituals are so important to the art form. They're very important to me being rides that line between gospel and classical. And not to say that spirituals aren't important, they're very much important, but to just highlight Black composers, they wrote spirituals, but they also did a lot more for the art form in addition to. So uh, that was the inspiration behind the, the project. And doing the recitals was just another way of spreading that music to different communities. Every single time I've done the recital, every person says, I've never heard of this composer. I've never heard of this song cycle. I've never heard of this song. This is brilliant. Why have I never heard of this? That's precisely the reason why you know, I'm presenting it, to bring awareness to these great composers. In fact, you've actually described this as a passion project. Yeah. You know, I always encourage other artists who have ideas and dreams and visions that they want to bring to the table to pursue those things because passion projects help keep me really fueled up as an artist. Not to say that I don't enjoy singing this standard repertoire. I very, very much do because that's also a big part of the joy that I get of the performing arts and live theater is having that privilege to be able to communicate as a performer and make people laugh, make people feel something. That's so important. But in addition to doing that, I love seeking out personal things that, are, that really matter to me as an artist as well. And this was one of those projects. And once I had this idea, it's something I knew that I wanted to see through. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about Damien Sneed's piece that we heard a bit of at the beginning of the program, why you chose it to lead off the program and who Damien Sneed is. 
I thought it was a great idea to start the album with I Dream a World because the title of the album is Dreams of a New Day. So it felt like the perfect way to set the tone for this album. When you think about Langston Hughes's text of this about dreaming of a world that was one day free uh, of discrimination. And then we lived in a world of freedom and, and peace and love and unity. And it was just the perfect way to start this album and to also feature a living composer who's fantastic. Damien Sneed is someone who I heard about because of his collaboration with Lawrence Brownlee Tenor, and they collaborated on a group of reimagined spirituals that he set, which I thought were so amazing because the great thing about Damien, he's the type of artist that delves in other worlds in addition to classical jazz, gospel, and he's so sophisticated with how he can bring both of those worlds together. This was someone who I really wanted to feature on the album and to start the whole thing off. You actually commissioned a set for this album, and you've called it the focal point of the disc. So even though it comes later in the disc, let's continue the discussion with that piece. The set is titled Two Black Churches, and the composer is Sean O'Pebolo, a Chicago composer. And that's spelled O-K-P-E-B-H-O-L-O. The K is obviously silent. Or officially Sean E. O'Pebolo, as he uses his middle initial. These are two songs about tragedies that befell African Americans in the United States a full half century apart. The first song, titled Ballad of Birmingham, has to do with the 1963 Birmingham church bombing in Alabama. And the second piece, called The Rain, is based on the 2015 AME church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina. Can you talk about how this set came to be? This set came to be, first of all, I really wanted to feature something by Sean Pablo because I was drawn to his works when he asked me to sing on his album of Reimagined Spirituals in, I think, 2013, uh, along with Paul Sanchez, who's playing on this album. I was just so drawn to his writing because of the storytelling in it and just the way he brings out exactly what that story is in the piano, with how he sets the text. So I wanted to commission him for something really special. And I just happened to run across this poem called Ballad of Birmingham when I was just surfing on the web. The poem just struck me so hard with just how it was set, describing how one of these girls was asking her mom, can I march the streets and fight for freedom and fight for equality? And the mom keeps refusing and saying, no, no, you can't. I'm scared you're going to get killed. I'm scared you're going to get attacked by dogs. I'm scared that you're going to get hosed. All these horrible things. But the one place that I can trust where you'll be safe is church, which is a place of refuge and safety. It made me think about my own upbringing in church and the people who I went to church with. So it just really struck me because it was so personal. And this mom's thinking that her daughter would be a lot safer in church than in the streets. And of course, tragically, the bombing happens and the place where the mom thinks her daughter is going to be most safest has turned out to not be that. This is the poem that I wanted Sean to set to music to. And he looked at this and then he had the idea of doing a parallel to the South Carolina shooting in 2015. The same tragic thing, just in a different era of today is five years ago. And then he commissioned the poet Marcus, who's from there, to do a poem about the shooting in Charleston. That's how those two songs merged together as what we called Two Black Churches. And in the rain, which is so beautifully set, the rain signifies how South Carolina and Charleston particularly floods a lot and how Black people can barely keep their head above water. These terrible acts of racism continue to happen. That's in a nutshell how that came to be. Your description of the Ballad of Birmingham sets up perfectly the excerpt we're going to hear. The piece opens with a very long piano solo that gives a wonderful sense of that musical gospel church sound. In our excerpt, we'll pick it up right where the singing starts and the dialogue you mention between mother and daughter. This is before the tragedy happens, but you can already feel it impending. And one of the remarkable things about this song is how Apebolo weaves things like we shall overcome into the piano accompaniment. 
And we will hear a bit of that gospel church sound in the piano at the end of this excerpt. So here is a portion of Ballad of Birmingham by Shona Pebolo as performed by baritone Will Liverman and pianist Paul Sanchez. Instead of out to play And march the streets of Birmingham In a freedom march We've heard an excerpt, a very moving one, from a piece called Ballad of Birmingham, based on the church bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. The piece is by composer Shauna Pebolo on a text by Dudley Randall, the poet, as performed by baritone Will Liverman and pianist Paul Sanchez on their new CD Records album, Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers. The song comes from a two-song set called Two Black Churches that was commissioned by Will Liverman, the performer you just heard, and my guest on this podcast. So, Will, can you talk a little bit about the importance of commissioning new works? Yes. As we hold on to these treasured pieces and the repertoire, of the past, we have to keep our eyes open and see the amazing talent that's here right now. So many great composers that are living today and stories still always need to be told. I love Venturaiza, but at the same time, I love when we have pieces that are relevant to what's happening today. And that's why commissioning new works is so important. I think it only enriches the art form 
when we keep these new works coming along and continuing to have new conversations and telling new stories that we can relate to. And then, you know, 50 years from now, people look back and see the things that came about during our time and just adds to the depth of the repertoire out there. And so I think it's very important to commission new pieces. You talked about the power of new works, and that certainly would apply to what we just heard. Can you talk a little bit about the emotional journey of performing a piece like that? Oh, the emotional journey was a very difficult one because it took the fourth time for me to sing Two Black Churches without breaking down in tears. It's the text, it's how Sean sets it that makes it so gut-wrenching. The first few times just really took me to that place. And the rain, it made me think about all the church members that I grew up around and thinking of something horrific happening at my church because it could have happened. And when I think of the Ballad of Birmingham, just the way Dudley Randall sets the text, your heart breaks when you think of this mom's shock when the bomb goes off and then all that's left is just a shoe, a white shoe that she had just put on. Like the emotional depth is so, so much. As a performer, you often have to sing things that get really personal, but then eventually you have to find that thin line of tapping into what that is, but also having the strength to actually deliver what's being said. But it took a few tries for sure. Well, let's take a step back from the new work, which actually appears on the second half of the album. We'll go back toward the beginning of the album with the earliest work chronologically in the program. This is a set by Henry Thacker Burley, titled Five Songs of Lawrence Hope. And let's use that as a chance to talk about the art song tradition generally. You mentioned Vinterizer earlier, of course and Black art song specifically, that tradition and what it represents. For me, it's when I think of traditional art song, going back to what I said, you know, I think of just the art songs that were taught in school. We, we learn about the greats. We learn about Schubert, Schumann, Brahms, Wagner, Mahler, all these composers that gave so much to the repertoire and have these amazing works. We spend so much time on that, but we never explore some of the other composers that were so important. And Black art songs are so important because it gives us a voice. When I tap into these art songs, I can relate on a personal level, probably couldn't relate to digitally. Of course, as actors, we have to tap into experiences, even though we've maybe never had them. But there's something that's really heartfelt when your voice is being represented and you're able to sing that. For me, that's the important thing about Black art songs. I wish it was celebrated a little more and we had more insight and education about it. And of course, Burley is such an important figure and actually bridges that divide you talked about earlier between the spiritual tradition and the tradition of art song. Yeah, Burley, that was one of the big things he was known for being a, a composer, a ranger, a singer. He listened to these songs of his grandfather in Songs of the Field and these Negro folk songs and took these songs and made them accessible to Black classical singers, which then gave these Black classical singers a platform to have solo careers and sing repertoire that was really, really meaningful for them and to have their voice represented. So he really helped fuse the classical voice with these traditional gospel Negro folk songs to create what he did. And it was so important. And he also has an important history as both a student of and really a mentor to the great Antonin Dvorak. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, their minds are blown when they hear that because you don't expect it. When Dvorak came to New York City as a director of the conservatory, he met Burley, you know, this great relationship started. And Burley introduced Dvorak to the American spiritual and it influenced Dvorak's most important works, which is such a cool part of Burley's story that a lot of people probably don't know. For me, it was a very interesting and, and amazing thing to discover about who Burley was and why he was one of the most important composers of the early 20th century. And he was quite a prolific song composer. You've chosen to record his five songs of Lawrence Hope. Lawrence Hope is actually a pseudonym for poet Adela Florence Nicholson, writing under a male name for probably obvious reasons. And she had an interesting life. She was married to a colonel and traveled a lot. 
and lived much of her life in India and parts of the Middle East. And her poetry often reflects the surroundings, uh, those exotic surroundings, and includes unusual imagery uh, that can be heard in particular in poems that are set here, like Kashmiri song, and there are many references to lotus flowers, for example. And songs like Kashmiri song and the jungle flower can be quite exotic uh, harmonically, as Burley reflects this poetry. We'll actually be hearing the first song in this set, which is titled Worthwhile. It might be a little more straightforward harmonically, but it really shows the depth of Burley's writing in terms of emotion and presents a really operatic quality of singing that's different from much of what else is on this program. Can you talk a bit about singing a song like Worthwhile as opposed to the songs that come later in the album? Yeah, worthwhile. I mean, that's what I love about this song cycle. First of all, it's so different from when you listen to Burley's arrangement of a spiritual versus what this is. I mean, you think it's like two different people. This is what he brings to the text. So, you know, it's so dramatic, so <laughs> lust-driven, and you hear that in the music, and it gives the opportunity for me, being an opera singer, to really feel like I have the permission to sing. It all starts, I ask my desolate shipwrecked soul, and this is where we're starting. I have to have the dramatic qualities of the opera singer, like what the piece demands, I think, with the text and how it's set. I feel so right at home singing in. Well, let's let people hear that. This is Worthwhile, song by Henry Burley, set to poetry by Adela Florence Nicholson, writing under the pseudonym Lawrence Hope, performed by Baritone Will Liverman and Paul Sanchez at the piano. You just heard Worthwhile, the first song in a set called Five Songs of Lawrence Hope, which is actually a pseudonym. The poetry is actually by Adela Florence Nicholson, and the music is by the great Henry Burley. It's on an album featuring the artists you just heard, baritone Will Liverman and pianist Paul Sanchez, and Will Liverman is my guest on this Classical Chicago podcast. The album we're talking about is Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers, and that's one of several song sets on the album. There are a couple of standalone pieces as well, and we'll be talking about most of those rather than playing them. Most of the excerpts we're going to hear, our selections we're going to hear, are from the larger sets. The next piece on the album after the Henry Burley set is a setting of the famous text Amazing Grace by Leslie Adams, or Harrison Leslie Adams, 
a composer born in 1932 who is actually still with us. Can you talk a little bit about this piece? You know, I was just drawn to this piece uh, because I heard uh, singer Daryl Taylor sing it on, I think, a YouTube link. He's a big advocate of Black music and spirituals. I really was drawn to it because the text, when I think of Amazing Grace, everyone thinks of the famous hymn. But then hearing this, first I thought it was like an arrangement of Amazing Grace, and it was something completely I was not expecting. And I love it because it represents exactly what is Amazing Grace means to Leslie Adams in this piece, what makes him feel, and how it's said is also dramatic in its own way. And I was just drawn to the writing and the, the text. I should note that, like Burley, Adams is a very prolific and important song composer. One interesting thing about Adams' writing is that in his scores, he never puts dynamics in the solo part, meaning that he apparently wants to leave those dynamic choices to the singers, and that can lead to quite a wide variety of interpretations. For example, whereas uh, many singers go for a big ending on this piece, uh, which ends with the word love, you choose to sing that falsetto and its lovely and really tender effect. Right. And that's the beauty of leaving that up to interpretation is leaving up to the artist to decide like how they want to say certain words on certain notes. And, you know, there's cases to be made for like something really dramatic and a big ending to something or a case we made for something that's like really sweet and tender. I love that he leaves it up to the artist. Well, speaking of important composers, the next set on the album is by Margaret Bonds, who's a huge figure in Chicago music, as well as among both black and women composers. And she had a great relationship with Langston Hughes. And once again, we're going to hear Langston Hughes settings in her three dream portraits on the album, which encompass three quite well-known Langston Hughes poems. What would you like to say about these? Margaret Bonds, I had to feature her on this album because she's such an important composer. I mean, just in general, let alone being Black female composer, like one of the first composers to gain like national recognition for her contributions and the Negro spirituals, popular ones like Go Tell on the Mountain, Ezekiel Saw the Wheel, Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. Her arrangements for those pieces made those spirituals well known. And she, someone that didn't shy away from what was happening to her at the time, and that's just, in general, another thing that I'm in awe of folks in her era and before is how are they to be so excellent and brilliant going through all of these terrible things happening around them. She had a terrible experience in Northwestern. She was allowed to go there, but she couldn't live on campus, experiencing all types of racism and discrimination. And still throughout all of that, writing like she wrote and refusing to be silent. She met Langston Hughes in the 30s and said a lot of his text and wasn't afraid to talk about her experiences and the things that were happening to her in America at the time, which is something that inspires me. She's a trailblazer. Black artists like her help pave the way for artists like me to do an opera performance and have to go to the coloreds only afterwards. These poems really tie into the album very nicely and really wanted to feature her, so it, it made the most sense. Just one example of how important a figure she was in Chicago. She was the first African-American ever to perform with the Chicago Symphony. Oh, wow. Yeah, she performed the Piano Concertino by Chicago composer John Alden Carpenter with that orchestra in 1933. She also premiered with a different orchestra, the Piano Concerto, by another very important African-American Chicago woman composer, Florence Price. You said when thinking about pieces to couple with your commission, the two black churches of Opebolos, you've said the three dream portraits of Margaret Bonds were among the first pieces that came to mind. Yeah, having three dream portraits with two black churches, the perfect link for both of these extraordinary pieces, because the two black churches deals with racism and hate. And then when you think of the three dream portraits, I think of the piece, I too sing America. You look at me, and see someone with dark skin and assume the worst. But if only you knew how beautiful I was, if only you knew how beautiful those girls were in the bombing or those church members in South Carolina, you would be ashamed. And so I just thought that that work with the two black churches kind of tied in nicely together to go along with this theme of dreams of a new day. So the three poems that are set here are Minstrel Man, Dream Variation, and I Too, certainly one of Langston Hughes' most famous poems. 
I remember when my daughter was reciting it at her school. I've chosen Minstrel Man as the piece we'll audition here. It's a piece in which emotions are just so raw, and you do amazing things with lines like, you do not think I suffer after I've held my pain so long, holding that note out, in fact, so long. Is there anything more you'd like to say about this piece before we play it? Well, I guess the one thing is just circling back around to you know, having our voices represented. My experiences as a Black artist are different from Margaret Bond's, and we have made progress, but I still have my struggles. When I think of Mr. Man, I can relate to that because I was performing La Boheme and I was Chouinard at Dallas Opera. You see me on stage and I'm having all the fun and doing the show, but then off stage, I'm just another Black intimidating person. I remember being profiled at Dallas when I was going, just running through a neighborhood and getting an exercise in. And then these two cop cars pulled up and one suit like obviously stopped at the stoplight and just sort of sat there as I caught up to him while I was running. And then the other cop car drove past him and they looked at me for a while and they're like, okay, he's not up to any harm. So either someone either called the cops and they saw me with my hood up and my headphones running or I was spotted or something. So when I think of Minstrel Man, I tap into that experience of these folks don't know I'm an opera singer and these folks that are on stage don't know what I have to go through as a black man just on the streets versus on stage. So, And of course, this poem is all about not seeing beyond the surface and not understanding what people, in this case, black people, are really feeling. So let's hear that then. This is Minstrel Man by Margaret Bonds from her three dream portraits settings of poems by Langston Hughes, performed by baritone Will Liverman and pianist Paul Sanchez. Minstrel Man, setting of poem by Langston Hughes by Chicago African-American composer Margaret Bonds, as sung by Will Liverman with Paul Sanchez at the piano from their new Sadie Records album, Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers. And it's the subject of this classical Chicago podcast on Sadie. And if you like what you're hearing, and I sure hope you do, you can find this album many places on Sadie Records' own website, sadierecords.org, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Also, you can buy the physical CD on Amazon.com and Archive Music. If you prefer to stream your music, you can do it at Spotify or Apple Music once the album is officially released on February 12th, that is, and on high-end places like HD Tracks and Prime Phonic and Idagio. This album will be everywhere for your enjoyment, and I sure hope you'll want to check it out. 
Let's continue the discussion now with Will Liverman, the star of the album. So let's talk for a moment about the next standalone song. We're actually devoting most of our discussion and excerpt listening to the song sets on this album. And the next song is by Thomas Kerr, based on poetry by Paul Lawrence Dunbar. The poem and the song are titled Riding to Town, and you've talked about positioning this piece between the rather emotionally heavy set by Margaret Bonds and the very powerful set that you commissioned, The Two Black Churches by Shauna Pebolo, as a bit of a lightning of the mood. Can you talk about your choice of this piece and about the importance of Dunbar as a poet in the generation preceding Langston Hughes? Dunbar was such an important Black artist during his time, and I, I wanted to highlight something by him. And it was great because this song... Actually, Riding to Town has a lot of significance for me because it was one of the first art songs I remember learning as a student. And my teacher, who I mentioned earlier, Robert Brown, assigned me this piece. And he would assign all of his Black baritone students this piece. So we all knew this. We call it like the Robert Brown National Anthem because we all used to sing Riding to Town. And we would always laugh about how hard it was as a high schooler to learn that with all of the chromaticism and kind of the funky rhythms. But it was such a fun piece. Once you got the hang of it, once you learned it, it was a blast to sing. So in addition to, as you're saying, you know, having something a little bit more lighthearted in the album, it's sort of my dedication to Robert Brown, this piece. Well, that's really lovely. And... You've talked about this piece as lightening the mood, and in fact, it literally bounces along. It's the story of a couple in a carriage that is, in fact, bouncing along the road, and their joy at just being with each other. Uh, But we'll move on from that now to the rest of this album, which the next piece you would hear an album sequence uh, after this is The Two Black Churches, which we've already heard from and talked about. So that takes us to the last big set on the album, which is by Robert Owens. It's his Mortal Storm, Opus 29, which is a series of five Langston Hughes settings, poems spanning quite a range, in this case, from the 1920s through the 1940s of Langston Hughes's. And each song in the set has a different mood. Uh, Specifically, the last four songs in the set have each their own specific mood. We're actually going to hear... The first song, however, based on a relatively early Hughes poem, A House in Taos, and that one actually covers a greater range. In fact, the poem itself is in four different sections with different moods to them. The sections are headed rain, sun, moon, and wind, and the piece goes through those different moods. So can you talk about the composer, Robert Owens, and the cycle as a whole, and then we'll zero in on the piece we're going to hear. Robert Owens, the composer, this was someone who I virtually knew nothing about. And again, I was given by Robert Brown this book. It's an anthology of African-American composers. And in the anthology, I saw two songs from this thing called Moral Storm, Genius Child, and Faithful One. When I played them, it was just drawn in. It was just very different, like a style of writing I never really heard before. Something very peculiar and memorable about it. And I was where's the rest of the cycle? I would always look on YouTube. I would type in Mortal Storm. I couldn't find the rest of the songs. And then finally I ordered the whole cycle so I could see what the rest of the piece looked like. And I was just really drawn in to that operatic quality. And especially the first number that we're going to hear, he says in it that he wants it to be very dramatic and operatic because the Mortal Storm is, I guess, storms that we go through as humans in our lives. And you really hear that in the piano the loud, of course, big quality that represents the storm. And it's just so different, the twists and turns the music takes you on. And I was just really drawn into that and really wanted to highlight this whole complete cycle. For one, you don't really see this done mortal storm as a complete cycle anywhere. And second, I really just appreciate the variety of of styles that he brings. It's unassuming, it's different. Well, as you point out, the harmonic twists really are fascinating. And also, it is a big sing, so I guess that relates it to the Burley set that we heard earlier. And he also really seems to like writing repeated notes for the piano. Well, let's hear this then. This is from a set of five Langston Hughes settings under the title Mortal Storm. 
Music by Robert Owens, and this is the first piece, A House in Taos. in Taos, sung by baritone Will Liverman with pianist Paul Sanchez from their brand new album on Sadie Records, Dreams of a New Day, songs by black composers. This, I think, would be a good time to talk about your collaborator on this album, pianist Paul Sanchez, after that very virtuosic piano part we just heard. Can you talk about how you and Paul got to know each other? Yeah, I got to know Paul. He's a great guy. We met because of Shadow Pebolo, who back in 2013 or even 2012 proposed this CD of uh, reimagined spirituals that he arranged. And he got Paul Sanchez to play. So that's how I met Paul. And we did this album together. And I was just really drawn into Paul's touch on the piano and the feel. And he's a very, very sensitive musician. I really appreciated all the things that he was able to do with Opebolo's writing. And so I wanted to have him aboard for this because I knew I wanted to commission something else by Sean and Paul really knew how to play Sean's music and really bring that out. So I thought Paul would be really great for a project like this with all the different styles and very virtuosic playing and, and different emotions and colors that he brings to it is fantastic. So I was really happy to be able to work with him for this project. Well, let's also talk about the experience of the recording sessions. We recorded this in July 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. 
We're actually taping this podcast in December 2020, and unfortunately, we're still in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, what was it like recording in that pandemic summer? So that in and of itself was such a joy to be able to do again and to be able to make music and do a project like this. But of course, in a lot of ways, it was weird because we have rules that we have to abide by with COVID-19. So every time we would go check and listen to something <laughs> that we just recorded, you know, put our mask on, take it off, always remembering, where's your mask? Getting adjusted to the new protocols and making sure that we're all safe and that I don't get too close to Paul. He doesn't get too close to me. We all respect the distance and be as safe as possible. And of course, with COVID-19 forever changing, there's always updates and new regulations. And so it was a, like a new experience and different because I haven't really sung during any pandemic before, but also it was a joy to be able to make music again after being out of it for a while. Well, and I can say as the producer of this album, it was such a joy to be in the process of recording. It did take us quite a few attempts to get these sessions actually scheduled, but happily it obviously all worked out in the end. The final work on the album is your own arrangement of Richard Farina's Birmingham Sunday, a song he wrote for his sister-in-law, Joan Baez. So this might be a good time to talk about your own work as a composer and arranger. This is full circle because I think the reason I sought out this Battle of Birmingham poem, I don't even think I was seeking it, I was doing research and more because I watched the Spike Lee documentary about the bombing and it just moved me so much. I wanted to know more about, I don't know, I just went down this rabbit hole of just going through things and that's why I stumbled across the Battle of Birmingham. But I guess that's not the point. The point of it is when I was watching this documentary, at the end of the documentary, they played song Birmingham Sunday. It just struck me so much a folk song but about all these terrible things they was naming each of the girls and there's something about that piece that I just really wanted to reimagine and arrange and I had dabbled in arranging before you know I would sometimes arrange musical theater pieces sometimes I arrange like my own spirituals and composition actually was something that I was always interested in I studied piano and I grew up heavily listening to gospel music and and learning by ear and so that's how that love of composition and arranging started and so when I heard Birmingham Sunday, I knew immediately that, that was something I wanted to reimagine and to arrange. And so I did. And, uh, and I wanted that to be final link to the Ballad of Birmingham. And the song ends with, and the choir keeps singing of freedom, which echoes throughout the whole album. So that's how that came about. Wow. And uh, your arrangement is quite different from the original uh, sung by Joan Baez, which has a very nice, pleasant acoustic guitar accompaniment, whereas yours really uses the full resources of the piano to make a powerful statement. And I think your arrangement really does reflect the words of, of the poem uh, much uh, better. Uh, the uh, sentiments in it, uh, for example, when you get to, on Birmingham Sunday, a noise shook the ground, we really hear that noise. And it also makes the quiet approach to the next verse which is actually the only one in the song that comes from the original Scottish ballad on which the tune is based, uh, just so much more affecting. Oh, and I should note that this is the one exception on the album in that you play the piano part yourself. And am I correct that that piano part is still not actually written down yet? It will be now, uh, now that I figured out Sibelius. <laughs> okay, good to know. But of course, at the time of the sessions, it was not written down. So I hope I'm not giving away any state secrets by revealing how we actually managed to record it. Since we obviously couldn't record you just sitting at the piano, it wouldn't match the sound of the rest of the album with you on the front of the stage. So you actually laid down the piano part first over a few takes, and then you sang with the headphones on to one of those takes. And then with the magic of editing, we put it all together making sure the voice part and the piano part always lined up properly. And hats off to CD Records because that's a prime example of you allowing artists to have that creative freedom and making it work and taking something like that. I didn't have any music to present, but you know, it was a different way of doing it. I played the first and then you guys brilliantly matched my voice and the piano together to make something quite special. So hats off to you and the team for making this piece work because I really felt it was important to have on the program. 
Well, I appreciate that, but those hats off should be to Bill Malone, the amazing recording engineer for Sadie Records, who it's been my privilege as a producer to work with for over 30 years now. And it's really been the case that there's no task I can come up with that he can't manage to solve, which is a wonderful feeling for a producer, I have to say. So with that, let's hear this. This is Richard Farina's Birmingham Sunday, as arranged, sung, and played by Will Liverman. Come round by my side and I'll sing you a song. I'll sing it so softly it'll do no one wrong. On Birmingham Sunday the blood ran like wine. And the choir kept singing a freedom. That cold autumn morning no eye saw the sun. church there was no need to run and the choir kept singing the freedom the clouds they were dark and the autumn wind blew and Denise McNair brought the number to two the falcon of death was a creature they knew and the choir kept singing the freedom. The church, it was crowded and no one could see. That Cynthia Wesley's dark number was three. Her prayers and her feelings would shame you and me. And the choir kept singing the freedom. Young Carol Robertson entered the door And the number her killers had given was four She asked for a blessing but asked for no more And the choir kept singing the freedom You just heard the famous song, Birmingham Sunday, of Richard Farinas in an arrangement by baritone Will Liverman, who in this case not only arranged the piece and not only sang the piece, but also accompanied himself at the piano through the magic of recording technology. That's the only track on this album where that's the case. On the rest of the album, Will Liverman is joined by his pianistic partner, Paul Sanchez, and the album is Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers. From Sadie Records, it's our February 2021 release. 
February 12, to be exact, will be the date when it becomes available on all the streaming sites and can be shipped as well as a physical CD. And you can get it from cdrecords.org directly. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. You can also buy it on sites like Amazon, of course, or Archive Music. You can stream it from Spotify, Apple Music, iDagio, Primephonic, all the super high-end sites. You name it, we're there. And Birmingham Sunday is the last work on the album. Now that our listeners have had a chance to hear examples of so many of the pieces, what would you like them to take from hearing these different pieces and from the experience of hearing the album as a whole? For me, the hope is I want people to keep these conversations going of racism in America, things we could do to come together and to really keep fighting for justice and to strive to make this a better place. And also for classical folks that love to learn about new repertoire, for them to come away and hear this music maybe for the first time and get completely immersed in these composers and research them and find out more about their story and go listen to Florence Price or folks, of course, if I tried to represent every Black composer, the album would be eight hours long. But just to draw that spotlight on all of these very important composers, a lot of times get overlooked listening to their music and fully inspired by it. Speaking of being inspired, we recorded this album over the summer. And this past summer, we not only had to deal with the COVID crisis, but also the twin crisis of police brutality that was laid so bare in Minneapolis. What artistic responses to that have most inspired you? It's been an inspiring thing to see. And obviously, this is something that didn't magically happen this year. The issues with racism and social justice have been problems uh, we've been fighting for. But with the combination of COVID-19 and with the events that happened in Minnesota, caused everyone to come in a standstill and really face the issues at hand with how Black people are treated in America. And it's been inspiring to see people's eyes open and wanting to make that change and wanting representation in the arts world and having our voices heard uprooted a lot of things. Of course, it's terrible that it took these events for this to happen, but it's a light at the end of the, the tunnel, or not a light at the end of the tunnel, but just a hopeful thing to be able to see folks really in support of making this world a better place and wanting to do the right thing. Being civil, I'm really inspired by that. It gives me joy and it inspires me as an artist to keep going and keep seeking out new passion projects and keep telling our stories. That's really wonderful. Since you mentioned the COVID crisis, what have you been able to do as a performer, despite, as you said, things shutting down? For me, I've been as thankful and grateful to have opportunities to do a lot of virtual things and virtual recitals at home. Um, I've recorded a few things. Of course, we did the album over the summer. And a few companies have been hired to do COVID-proof concerts where you have either a small audience or something that's just live but is virtual. So I've been able to work here and there and stay afloat throughout this. But it has been the case for everyone. And I realize how grateful I am to be still singing in some way and keeping it going. And obviously my hope now with a vaccine coming that we all at some point next year get back in the theaters and back to more of our normal way of living and getting artists back to work. And I hope in turn, speaking of things that needed to happen or not that happened, that hopefully will be for the good. You know, hopefully folks that have been sitting at home for so long, when it's safe to go out again, folks are going to be craving the arts more than ever. And hopefully lining up to go see a theater play or go to the opera or to the CSO, or we've been trapped in here for so long. And I, I think there's hopefully going to be a big outburst of folks having a new appreciation for live performance and being outdoors and enjoying what Chicago has to offer, what other cities with great arts communities have to offer, and so hopefully turn things around for the good. You know? uh, speaking of which, I wanted to ask you what performances and projects you have coming up, including for next season, the next concert season, 21-22, when I think we all expect this period of isolation to finally be behind us. Yeah, very looking forward to knock on wood here. The Met next year, they're doing this opera by Terrence Blanchard called Fire Shove My Bones, and I'll be singing the lead role in that. 
And if things go according to plan, it will be the first opera that will be performed since the pandemic. It's going to open the season. So I'm very much looking forward to being a part of that. And Terrence Blanchard will be, the, I think, the first Black composer to have his work featured at the Met. So there's lots of biggies there that I'm looking forward to that and hoping that that happens. And in addition to that, I'll be doing a repeat of my season at the Met. I'll be Akhenaten, I think, will happen later that season. And then Magic Flute again. I'm hoping that we can get back in the theaters by the fall and then continuing to see an increase of folks the more that this vaccine is out and people are feeling more safe. And I believe you have a piece of your own coming up as well, right? <laughs> yeah. As a composer, another thing that this pandemic has brought about is just me to, with the gigs canceled, I've had a lot of time to work on my own piece, which is called The Factotum, and it is an updated version of Barbara Seville that's set in a Black barbershop. It features a lot of different various types of styles of Black music, like uh, R&B and hip-hop and neo-soul and original barbershop quartet. There's Greek chorus and the connective tissue of the music. So we had a lot of time to work on that this summer, and I was fortunate enough to actually do a workshop of it that just happened with Lyric Opera, and it was a great experience. We had a great time. Another thing that I'm all about is you can be a performer and do that, but if you have other things that you are really passionate about and want to to showcase or things that you want to pursue, I'm a big believer in pursuing those things and not being limited to what people might perceive of you. It's like, oh, he's this person, so he can only do that. Or, oh, he can't commission that. He's, you know, so breaking that trend and realizing that future's in our hands. It's on us to continue to enrich the art form and keeping it thriving while also paying respects to the pieces that are already there. Finally, I wanted to ask you as someone originally from Virginia, but who came to Chicago first for your undergraduate studies and then again for the Ryan Opera Center program and then happily for us decided to stay here and base your career here. What makes the Chicago music scene special for you? Chicago music scene is so special for me because I'm like a fake Chicagoan at this point. I'm from Virginia. I call Virginia the place where I grew up, and I call Chicago the place where I grew up as an adult. Me, you know, I spent my undergrad years in Wheaton, so I wasn't quite in Chicago. But then once I moved here to start the Ryan Center, I've been here for about eight years, and Chicago is, definitely feels like home to me now. Such an important part of me as an artist, growing up here as an artist, and just think of all of like the black excellence here in Chicago, all of the amazing history in Chicago. It really is an important place to me, and is and it's also an honor to be able to work on this project with a record label who's based in Chicago, who's champions and supports a Chicago artist. So all Chicago, 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 you know, it's a great city and I'm happy to be a part of it. Well, we're so glad you're a part of it and have chosen to base your career here. I've been talking to baritone Will Liverman, whose new album on CD Records, Dreams of a New Day, Songs by Black Composers with pianist Paul Sanchez, is officially being released on February 12th. It's been the subject of my discussion with Will Liberman on this Classical Chicago podcast, episode number 41 from Sadie Records. Thank you so much for listening.